All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Very special guest today, Greg McHale is joining us. Greg is a well-known uh, hunter, content creator, TV show host, adventure sports enthusiast, and and kind of a shining example of like a Canadian who, I don't, you know, I don't want to say made it, but like there's not a whole lot of us Canadians in the hunting and outdoor industry that have really kind of made their own mark and and made their own path. And Greg is a really good example of somebody who's done that. So I asked him to come on the podcast because I think he's got a lot of really interesting things to share that we can all learn from. So thanks for taking the time, Greg. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jay. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the intro and um, I'll try to, I'll try to live up to it. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. So maybe um, just to get out for those of you who, who, those of us who don't know you or, or aren't familiar with your background, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. How did you, um, I know you're in the Yukon now. Is that where you were kind of born and raised? And how were you initially exposed to the to the outdoors and develop your passion? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I live in the Yukon now, and I've been here for 26 years. Uh, I grew up in Ontario, kind of rural farm country living. Um, I grew up in a small town called Palmerston or couple thousand people but I spent all my weekends out on uh, on my grandparents farm so uh that's kind of that's kind of really where where I I grew up and that was the uh, the foundation I guess to the outdoors but you know growing up in Ontario and in farm country there's there really is no wilderness right. um in southern Ontario so you have to travel a fair ways to you know to go and find wilderness and kind of where it started I would say my my love for the outdoors and like for the wilder places is um on family holidays you know my dad was a big fisherman um and way more into fishing than and but we did go up north and you know north of Sault Ste. Marie where he grew up and we would take you know our our big old car and pack it full of all of our all of the, you know, the camping stuff that you could fit into a car, drive into down a logging road as far as you can go and, and then set up camp. And that was our, that would have been our holiday for the year. So it was, you know, pretty, pretty humble, pretty humble beginnings for sure. And just, you know, that's what, how we were introduced to the outdoors. And, you know, to this day, um, I still get to get out with my, with my father. It's, uh, it's, pretty important and now he lives up in the Yukon as well so coming from you know Ontario to to here is a huge change I remember coming home um, I was working while I was going to university and coming home to my girlfriend and saying who was my wife now and saying you know we're gonna uh, let's go to the Yukon after school and she kind of looked at me like um, what are you talking about like yeah. a where is the Yukon <laughs> and uh and then and then be like what do you what are you actually thinking here um because denise's idea of a family holiday was a rv in florida and epcot center so yeah. she uh she definitely didn't come from from an outdoors background which is you know probably a better story than mine at least i was at least i was uh, you know ingrained in it from from an early age where she definitely wasn't i kind of brought her into this world where she uh, she now has 
done unbelievable things in the outdoors and is, you know, one of the highest level athletes our country has ever seen in outdoor sports. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, an interesting journey for not just me, but for our whole, you know, for her as well. And now we have two kids up in the Yukon and it's just a, it's a great place to be about as far removed from Ontario as you can get and still be in the same country. Well, you're, you're speaking my language here because I was, I was born and raised in a small Ontario town called own sound. And, uh, Spent most of my life until I was 16 in On Sound, did a bit of a stint in, in Winnipeg, and I've been in BC since I was, I was 23. Um, I did my first degree at Thunder Bay at Lakehead University. In our version of the outdoors, we would do moose hunting just outside of North Bay a couple years with my old man. <clears throat> my first real like wilderness experiences, my, my mom and dad split, and my mom took us interior canoeing in Killarney and Algonquin. So you know, to one of her friends. So these two ladies with these three kids going in for seven days, you know, with everything nice. you're going to need on your back and yeah. portaging. And I'm this 12 year old chubby kid carrying a whole canoe. And that was, my, that's when I think I first fell in love. But I mean, you hit that nail on the head with the lack of wilderness, like, especially where, where I was from, like there was nothing like you could go to the, you know, they did a really great job with what they had as far as campgrounds and stuff go in that Southern Ontario region, but there was no such thing as being any distance from a road or a farm or a piece of ag land, like nothing like what I've got in BC and you've got in Yukon. Like it was just, you do see, start to see that in like when I did the degree in Thunder Bay and I did tree planting. So went up to like Hearst and like, there's definitely some bigger spots up there, but yeah, down South, there's just none of it. Yeah, I know Own Sound well. I played uh, played hockey uh, against Own Sound for for a lot of years, and I know that area area well. So you were just you're literally a stone's throw from where I grew up. Yeah, that's like, pretty funny. Eh? We, I don't know what your age, we, but we 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 could have been like we could have run apart, you know across each other at some point, um, which is which is pretty neat. But yeah, but you did spend some time up in that you know that northern yeah. Ontario country, and that bush is that bush is legit up there. hundred um, percent. You know, you start talking about Hearst and Thunder Bay and yep. like, those are, you know, that's, that's a, it's a really nice Canadian shield, uh, shield country. And it's funny because you, you did the whole canoe tripping thing. And that was really where I would say that I cut okay. my teeth in, um, in getting out on my own. Right. And, and really, you know, pushing, pushing that, that wilderness aspect. And I did it, uh, started out with school trips in Algonquin Park. So very similar to what you're talking about. And when you, when you grow up where we did, and then you, you get in that canoe with all of your stuff yeah. and you start making your way across lakes and then putting it on your back and portaging yeah. and you feel like you are on another planet hundred percent at that, at that young age, right? Because you never, you know, we've never experienced it and it's, it's life altering. Yeah. And you know, you actually just kind of reminded me of, of, of that. And those, those experiences to me, it sounds like were very similar to yours and, and they might be the moments where you go, I need more. I need more of this. I need, I need the West. And I think that's uh, where we both landed up. It, well, and the interesting part is, cause I have this kind of like story in the middle of my life. I'm 43 now. And I really got back into passionate outdoors, I'm going to say in my early 30s, maybe about a decade ago. <clears throat> and I have this like period in the middle where I wasn't really as integrated with the outdoors due to a variety of reasons. And um, 
And then when I got back into it, it was like coming home. And at first I didn't know why it felt like coming home. And it actually took quite a while for me to like reconnect with those childhood experiences and being like, and I have this saying that when I'm in the mountains, I feel more like me than anywhere else. Like it's the one place I can go where I don't feel like I have to think about what I'm supposed to say or how I'm supposed to be, or like, I just feel natural. And like the harder it gets, the more natural I feel. Like I really crave that like intense challenge. And I think like it almost gets addictive. Like I've I, I I've gone through periods where I have a hard time coming out because you've been in for two weeks and I finally put my, my finger on it a couple of years ago and it really harkens back to those initial canoe trips. It's the purity and the simplicity. Like we live in this society where we're inundated yeah. with like information and people and things and thoughts and pictures and media. And, you know, I've got a kid, you've got kids, we've got significant others. Like your attention is constantly being dragged in all these. And we kind of get used to that and we think that's how things are supposed to be. But then you go in the wilderness and it's, I like solo trips. I know you've got a propensity for solo trips. And I think, and I'm not going to call out group trips. I think there's a, there's a great time and a place for it but there's, there's just nothing else like that purity of a solo trip in the wilderness. And, you know, you start hitting days three, four, five, and six, and like all that BS starts to drop away and you're forced to confront your own mind and there's nowhere to run. And like you go through all those, like now you're really uncomfortable and you're remembering shit from when you were a teenager. And it's just like, it's such a trip, man. But like it, that, that was such a, like a developmental part of, of me becoming who I am. Like, I don't know how else I would have become me if it hadn't have been for those opportunities for growth that the wilderness really, you know, created the environment that made that possible. Yeah. You're, you've hit the nail on the head in that, you know, the, the speed at which, at which life is, um, whether it's, you know, it's the TV, social media, it's all of this, all of this inundation with, you know, bullshit in a lot of ways and it, you just get it broken down and you get life into perspective when you do get out there by yourself and and that's such that's you know i i just wish you know it's kind of the double-edged sword but you wish that some of these people that have never experienced it could just experience it once and understand what we're talking about because you can't understand if you don't get out of the city and you don't know nope. your idea of a, of a wilderness excursion as a walk through the park. You can't, you can't get it. And then you've, you've talked about, you know, the next level is the solo experience. Yep. And that, that literally is a next level because you have nowhere to run. Like it's nope. you and your own brain. And unfortunately for me over the last, you know, number of years on a personal development side, you know, with the television show, I've, um, I haven't had those experiences right. in, in, in a while. And, you know, I feel, I feel a little bit jealous as you, as you bring them up because they, they are life defining and they, they are experiences that, that you can only have when you go out and do it by yourself and, it's just you and your own brain and you figure out whether you actually like yourself or not. And, you know, because there's, there's nowhere to escape to. So those are, those are the moments. And um, I'm a little bit, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit jealous that you're, you're getting those in because I haven't in a while. And it's just a matter of um, it's a matter of me just going out and doing it. It's not that I can't, it's just, it's a, it's time. It's right. It's just like slow, the slow the things down and, 
and go out and, and do those things. But um, yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying and I 100% agree. And I believe that everybody should have them. Okay, so let's back up a little bit because I, I'm kind of curious because I think you've got that same bug that I've got this kind of you don't feel fulfilled unless you're testing the limits of your own potential. And that's not, I'm not going to make a value judgment about that. Some people have it, some people don't. That's okay, we're all a little bit different. But I'm kind of curious where that comes from. Um, and one thing I'm curious about, were sports a big thing for you as a kid? So yeah, definitely sports. I think that it all started. Um, I'm super competitive. Um, and it's competitive to, you know, to a fault sometimes. And I think that, uh, and it certainly was fostered through sports, but I was always a big team player. Um, so growing up, you know, in Ontario or growing up in Canada, it's certainly in those days, uh, you, if you didn't play hockey, um, <laughs> like there was, there was probably, you know, there was other reasons, but most people played hockey. Let's yeah. put it that way. So, I grew up, I grew up playing hockey and, um, that was my, you know, my main sport after, after I realized I wasn't going to the NHL, um, I went on, I played some university hockey and then it was like, okay, let's figure out what's, uh, you know, what's going on after, after that was sport. So it's sport has always been huge in, in my life. And the one common thing that's, you know, from a, from a young age of probably 14, once I started hunting, then, um, you know, hunting has always been there, but different sports throughout the years have, have came and went. And I, you know, I would have, uh, I had a propensity for endurance athletics, but that wasn't something that was fostered in, you know, the area that we grew up. Like nobody, nobody that I knew was an endurance athlete, right? It was, you either played hockey or baseball or you did nothing. Um, so yeah, I had, uh, but sport, was obviously huge throughout my whole uh, throughout my whole life and still is and it's just a, it's been uh, it's been a great ride no matter you know what I've been into whether it's you know the professional adventure racing career that I did for a long time um, I was a you know once I got out west I really started to find my stride athletically um, because I needed to leave Ontario to really be able to understand what it is that I was good at right. and what I uh, I had a you know, a really a passion for, and that's, uh, the moving, you know, leaving Ontario was certainly the best thing I could have ever, ever done, um, in so many ways, but athletically for sure. Okay. So, um, you mentioned having a strong relationship with your father. I'm, I'm curious, was he like, a was he a, was he a tough guy? Were there harsh standards at home? Was it not so like, how was that relationship? And do you think that, impacted you know gave you some of the some of the drive or or how did that relationship affect you in that regard so it's uh he is an he is an interesting character um and I, and I do call him that because he is a bit of a character from time to time but my father has um has had an obvious a huge impact in my life um was he a tough you know, one of those tough kind of militaristic type fathers. Absolutely not. Okay. He was, um, was he a, was he a strong man? Um, absolutely. But he wasn't, he wasn't like a physically tough person on me. Mm -hmm. He was unbelievably supportive 
um, you know, he was, he coached the, my hockey team as a, as a, you know, as a child, um, you know, when I was playing junior hockey, they, my parents would, you know, they wouldn't miss a game if they had to drive three hours, you know, or four hours, they yeah. just didn't miss a game. Um, those are the kind of parents that I, that I have. And I have, um, and my mother was just an, un, just an unbelievably caring, um, you know, she is an unbelievably caring person and I'm fortunate to have both of them in my life still. Um, and yeah, she like, so it's, it's a combination of both parents for sure. Um, but my father was always the, he was always driving in that he didn't necessarily know the technical way to, to teach me to get to the next level, but he certainly knew that, mental toughness and just physical toughness were mandatory in the world. Gotcha. And he certainly taught me that, that those kind of things, um, if you, you know, you wake up and you, you know, you put your head down. Um, and the other person in my life that I would really say fostered a work ethic was my grandfather. Okay. So I've been <clears throat> blessed to have amazing family support my whole life. And, um, you know, I, I have to attribute it a lot of success to that and having this, you know, this stable environment that uh, I always had, you know, I always grew up in. So, so tough, like, like he's not a, not a big man, not an opposing, you know, his stature, but the kind of guy that if you, you know, you got into the corner with that, you don't want to be there. Right. Um, so, you know, it, unless he's on your side. Yeah. So he, he really certainly fostered that never quit. Do not back down. If the, if it starts, you finish it attitude. Yep. And that's always stuck with me. And then as far as the, the work ethic goes, I believe it was my grandfather. He was a four thirty in the morning guy sure. that just, um, you know, not, not the healthiest, healthiest person, <laughs> you know, certainly that farmer, but just, you know, dig, dig in and get out of bed, go to work and you don't stop until the sun goes down if you stop then. Right. Yeah. So yeah, he was, uh, I, I got to tell this story because it's, it's, it's huge to me is my grandfather, as he was, uh, he was getting older and I was, I think I was about 12 years old at the time. He, he had had a heart attack and he lived be, behind us. Um, they moved out off the farm and he moved in behind us with my grandmother and he had had a heart attack, but he just didn't slow down. And he took a job at, at a farm, at a chicken farm, picking eggs. Okay. And so he worked, went there and he worked there for a day. And then the next day this is on a weekend. And he, he said, Greg, uh, you're coming with me tomorrow morning. I said, okay, 7am rolls around and I jump in his car he drives us to the chicken farm and after you know after we spent eight hours picking eggs and it's hot and it sucks it stinks i don't know if you've ever been in a chicken barn but it's it's not a fun place to be in the summertime let's put it that way and so we worked the day and i thought okay well because i often just went with him wherever he was going and would work you know whether it's cows or you know whatever we would just spend sure. the day together <laughs> and so we, what happens next is he drops me off at home 
And he says, I'll see you tomorrow morning. And I'm kind of like, what? Thinking to myself, because you didn't say, you, you yeah. didn't, he was the kind of guy that you did not say, I'm not, you know, anything. Yeah. You just, okay, you know. So um, he said, I'll see you, I'll see you in the morning. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess we're doing this again tomorrow. Yeah. And so we go back there the next day. And at lunchtime, I see the boss, the owner of the, the farm or the boss, the manager, and my grandfather's talking to him. And then my grandfather gets, he waves to me, gets in the truck and drives away. And this was, this was the start of the job that I had for the next four years, every weekend. And he took the job. And, you know, in retrospect, I now know he took the job, not for him. He took the job from me. He literally told the boss, like, I wasn't even legal to have a job. That day he told, he told the boss, he said, Greg is going to, Greg is going to pick the eggs every weekend and I'll make sure that he's here every day, every Saturday, every Sunday, and I'll pick him up. He will be here. And, and literally got in his truck and drove away. And the guy, the boss was like, well, he came to me and said, I guess you're finishing the, the day off. <laughs> and that was, that was it. That was, that was how I was raised. You know, you're going to work, kid. Whether yeah. you, you know, it, it's not a choice. You're going to work. And I worked at that job for the next three years, almost every weekend of my life. And, um, you know, it's funny. I ran into, ran into that, that boss, you know, actually about two years ago and I hadn't seen him for wow, 20 or 30 years or something almost. And, uh, he, he was, he remembers that day. Like it was yesterday and he was just, and, uh, now That's you know, wild. he's a big hunter and he watches TV. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. To so now he's like, Hey, there. I know but that kid. I he hope used to that pick was eggs. a long winded way of, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it was really built. Um, it was a family thing where I got to, you know, to, to get it all. And I think that that's the key is having different people in your life that can provide different aspects of, uh, you know, of positive energy. And, uh, you take the good, you take the bad and you get it all figured out. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's helping to kind of shape the picture of, of who you are and kind of why you are the way you are. So let's jump forward a little bit and we'll kind of Gloss over the hunting for for now. Talk to me about how adventure racing became a thing, or where your like the interest or the opportunity for that first arose. Yeah. So adventure racing. Um, what I was doing, we're my wife and I had we'd lived in the Yukon for a while, and I was um, I was really big into mountaineering. So okay. like I had climbed Mount Logan and Mount McKinley or Denali. Um, I was you know, into big wall climbing and yeah. So that was kind of my, my thing. And to be prepared for those kind of endurance um, mountaineering trips, I was doing a lot of running and my wife was a, was also a, a runner or I would say she is the runner. And so we, I did a lot of running just for training. Okay. Um, then there was an adventure race that, was coming to the Yukon. So the city of Whitehorse uh, called me up, the tourism department, and they called me up and said, hey, Greg, can you put a team together to compete in this adventure race? So it's, it's going to be a 450-kilometer race. 
and we want to have a local team. Um, no local team has ever, you know, wished one of these races that have been put on and can you put a team together? So I was like, hell yeah. I, yeah. you know, not even really like I'd seen adventure races, but I had no idea what I was getting into. It was just, it was kind of like classic Greg in that, of course I can do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll figure out how later fig, kind of figure it out as, as I go. <laughs> yeah. Well, little did I know how, you know, how physically and mentally demanding that that first race was, was going to be not just the first one. Like, I mean, there, you know, my whole career was, was filled with, you know, times of that you thought that you couldn't take another step or you didn't, you know, you didn't know what was around the next corner when it comes to racing, but yeah, so that's, so we, I put this team together. Um, my wife, cause my wife and I said, in adventure racing, you generally have to have a um, one person of the of the opposite sex. So at the highest level, it's always one woman and three guys. Okay. Um, Ninety nine percent of the time. Um, and my wife, being a great endurance uh, athlete runner, she uh, she was the obvious choice in the territory. So. Um, well, there was there was actually one other woman who ended up doing the race, but. Um, who was also a really great athlete. They used to compete against Denise. But um, yeah, so we put together a team, two other guys, two other actually dog mushers who had great experience with sleep deprivation. So they did the, you know, the Yukon Quest and the uh, Iditarod. And yep. they were both good athletes as well. So we put together, we put together this, this team of, you know, I would say two people that had very little experience at sleep deprivation but we're, you know, we were physically strong and the other guys, they complimented that, complimented that with sleep deprivation. And we put together the team and we ended up, I think, and finished in sixth place or something in the first, but for the first um, UConn team and the first local team to ever finish one of these races. So that was the start of it. Um, but I do remember, you know, Denise and I looking at each other on day four, you know, after she, you know, well, we all went through these, ups and downs of <laughs> unbelievable emotions throughout the throughout that first race but there was a time when Denise was like literally fetaled up and crying just sobbing and you know in the middle of the night and you know you just got to keep going and I remember about eight hours later after that saying to Denise like like and I'm you know in a low place I said just remind me never to do this again and she said no problem no problem. So, you know, we finished that race in whatever, four and a half days. And literally within the next two weeks, we were looking for the next race. It How was that? that experience. Yeah. That experience was absolutely probably the, the single most life altering experience that um, I certainly ever had. And Denise would probably agree the same because what we learned there, and it kind of goes back to the point of that you were making that, you know, people getting out into the wilderness and experiencing, you know, these things on their own adventure racing tore, tore me down physically, mentally to the point where I know exactly who I am. Okay. And when you get to a place where you really figure out who you are 
it's a it's an amazing place to be whether it's you you know figuring out your weaknesses um are probably more important than your strengths so that's what adventure racing did for me and you know we went on to a 10-year career and we raced all over the world um and we raced for you know the best teams in canada uh the best teams in the united states and and europe so it was we were fortunate to be able to race on you know a lot of different teams and with a lot of amazing athletes and that sport is one that uh that will you know will <laughs> will give you the highest highs and the the lowest lows and it's uh, it's 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 an amazing thing experience to have had for sure so um walk me through i'm curious what the actual like what did that 450 kilometers look like like what are the different disciplines and like is everybody doing everything do you guys switch off like what's the interdependency there between between team members how's that dynamic yeah so adventure race in is like the ultimate team sport in the planet okay like so the race, basically what, what adventure racing is, it consists of generally consists of three main disciplines, which is one is trekking or running um, all cross country by, and we navigate by map and compass, no GPSs. It's just, it's true, you know, nat natural navigation um, and then mountain biking and paddling. So whether it's a canoe or a kayak um, and it's the four people on the team, when the you know start line, when you start the race, you don't finish the race until all four people in the okay. team cross the finish line. And as if one person drops out, you're all done. Um, and it's yeah, the race the race starts and then you hit a a series of you now that particular race and a lot of them is basically you don't get the course until you know less than 24 hours before the race starts. Okay. So you show up at a, at a location and then this is the start line and that's really all you know. Um, they give you the course outline, you know, up to, up to 24 hours before the race starts and you have to plot all of the, the checkpoints on the maps that you're given and with, you know, they give you UTM coordinates. So you have to figure out exactly where those, those checkpoints are. And if you screw it up in the, uh, you know, before the race even starts and you plot a checkpoint in the wrong place on your maps and you're navigating to the wrong place, then, well, you have, you know, you're just never going to find it and your right. race is over. So it's, it's the kind of, it's the kind of race that, it uses you have to you have to be aware at all the time um you know whether it's whitewater kayaking or whitewater boarding you know body boarding or you know ocean kayaking in huge swells in new zealand you know running through the bush in australia where everything wants to kill you um including <laughs> the you know the poisonous plants that yeah. you know <laughs> that you rub up against them and you can literally feel the feel the poison two years later and this is no this is no joke um these are the kind of environments that that these races are in mongolia watching the sunrise in mongolia like just some of these some of these most beautiful places on the planet but yet the most remote about right. them too so that's it's one thing that i really enjoyed about it and that i think that probably a lot of people get that 
from from hunting that do these you know these overseas trips or that get out uh that get out in the back country that that hunting provides um adventure racing certainly did that for me so that's the gist of the sport you know often the the kind of races that we did that we really were focused on and were our, our best at were these expedition style races that they call them okay so you carry all your own you carry all your own stuff you know you it's a it's like I said, it's the, the ultimate team sport where, you know, if Greg's hurting, um, somebody else in the team will take my weight. You know, if right. I'm feeling strong and we're on the, you know, we're on the bike and I'll hook somebody on a tow line and it's about traveling as fast and efficiently as you can with the whole team. And there's zero room for ego. The best right. teams on the planet check the ego at the door because you're going to have ups and you're going to have downs one day you might be the best on the team and a day later or hours later you could be the worst on the team and when you just when you look at the the whole goal being that we all cross the line at the same time as fast and as efficiently as possible that's uh that's how you have to look at it and which makes it the ultimate team sport because there is no you know, single man for himself, even in a hockey game, you know, you've got right. power forwards and you've got guys who score more goals and, you know, it's, it's a team sport, but there's a lot of individuality that, that goes on to making up, uh, you know, a lot of those sports where, you know, some people get the, the limelight and others don't. Um, but that's is where this, this sport just tears you down mentally more than more, as obviously it tears you down physically and which creates to the mental anguish, but it's, uh, I, there's nothing. I'm so glad that I was involved in it. I'm so glad that I had the jam to say, yeah, I can do that. I can put a team together, you know, way back, way back when, because it changed uh, my life. And, and, you know, I think it changed our whole family's life because our, my wife and my outlook on, on things, Sure. Would be far different had we not adventure raced. Um, there's really nothing, truly, there's nothing in life that is going to break me. Like, with the exception of, you know, something catastrophic with your, your family, your most yep. loved ones. Yep. But at the end of the day, that's not even going to break you either because somebody's got to be the strong one. And so, really, adventure racing has brought that out in both my wife and I, and no matter what happens, we're just going to get through it. Like I know in my heart that if everything in my world burned down tomorrow, I would stand on the street minus 20 with the kids, as long as the whole family was there and we would watch it burn. And then we would just pick up and we would just build it all again. Yeah. Love it. So how does the, the hunting and the adventure racing and the more extreme kind of hunting, where is the relationship there? Like when you get to the Yukon, are you already starting to do some of that more kind of extreme backcountry hunting or what's the timeline there? Well, one of the first jobs that I had when I got to the Yukon was in the outfitting industry. So I took a job as a packer or I, I, I was fortunate enough to get a job as a packer. So the rich dudes from the U S would come, come in and I would be their pack mule yep. for 
on a sheep hunt. So that's kind of was, was my first, first uh, job in this industry. And it really started out or built the foundation for, you know, what I expected from hunting. So I learned, I learned how to hunt at the sharpest end of the sword right. here in the Yukon. And so, but then again, that was like an opportunity came, came up. Well, I, shouldn't, I applied, I applied to every outfitter I could that in the territory when I first got here. And I got interviewed by two, um, and they may have been the two grouchiest old buggers on the planet. Of course. Um, and and I, I realize now why I even got the interview, because they were so grouchy and nobody else wanted to work for them. Right, right. It was worth their, worth their salt, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so the, funny, the funny thing about it is, is that, I didn't get either one of those jobs um, because I knew nothing about horses. So the two probably most desperate grouchy guys both denied me um, to, to come and work, work for them. Uh, So I ended up taking this, this job at a, you know, what I, I, it's almost embarrassing talking about now, but I took a job at a men's clothing store because I was desperate for work. Sure. Got to pay the bills. if you know, you, yeah, you got to pay the, you got to stay in the Yukon. That was my thing. It's like, you right. know, if I don't do this, I'm going to have to pack up and put my tail between my legs and yeah, go man. back to Ontario. And that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> so Greg, the men's clothing guy, which, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was terrible at it and I knew it, but this is how it, this is how the world works. I was in that in the store and this guy walks in in a camouflage jacket. And I was like, okay, I got to talk to this guy. It was the first Love like it. manly man that I've seen in this store. And like, <laughs> or that was my perception anyways. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I stopped him and I, and I started talking to him and I started talking about hunting. I don't know exactly what I said, but the the long and the short of it is this guy turned out to be, his name was Kelly Hogan and he owned Arctic red river outfitters on okay. in the Northwest territories. Yeah. Hey, I know Ben, Ben great, works for yeah, Arctic red. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So that's uh so Kelly owned it at that time. And the great thing about Arctic red was they didn't have horses ah. because I knew nothing about horses. Right. Yeah. So, so that's why I didn't get the other, the other jobs for sure. But, um, so I just asked, asked him like, Hey, like, what do you, what kind of hunting do you guys do? And he said, well, backpacking. And I was like, Hey man, like I, cause now, now I started to go back to my canoe tripping days, you know, back carrying a backpack in Algonquin park. And I said, like, I knew I could do that because I could portage for miles with a canoe under my shoulders and a pack on my back. So I was pretty confident. I say like, I can carry a pack wherever you need me to go. I can do it. And maybe, (laughs) maybe in again, in retrospect, I was shooting, you know, shooting above my pay grade (laughs) and, and just kind of saying, yeah, I can do that. And there's this common theme, I guess, in my life where I was like, you know what? I can do it. And I don't, I don't know that I can do it, but I'm just going to do it. And that's how I got that job. And it's been, I've been in the, uh, the industry, you know, off and on my whole life since that time. And 
like I said, I got was fortunate to be at the sharp end of the sword when it comes to big game hunting in uh, in not only North America but in the world. So I feel like we're going to skip how over adventure it. racing then became yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So to yeah. So to answer the question about adventure racing, that's kind of where it, it started, and then those two collided once I started to to race. Um, professionally, then it was just, I need to do this style of, of hunting because it just brings me so much pleasure. Right. So that's where those two, two kind of came together and these long treks. And, and now since then, you know, I've become a pilot and I have my own airplanes and, and I just really love getting into the, the wild places and trying to just put as much physical effort into it as I can um, and make it, uh, make it interesting that way. So, and, and this is where I was saying earlier, I feel like we're going to skip over a bunch of stuff, but I want to be, um, you know, aware of, of how much time of yours I'm taking. And I'm curious where, cause you're a little bit ahead of the curve because the, the whole backpacking thing is it's huge right now. Like everybody, everybody wants to be the next Aaron Snyder or the next, you know, Greg McHale. Like everybody wants to be the next big, backpack hunter but like that is a very and i think some people forget how recent of a trend that is like it didn't even really exist to this extent as little as five years ago as it as it does now and your content in in that regards is kind of ahead of the curve um what like what made you think i'm gonna do a tv show because i also know how that works and it's not like a magic fairy just kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, here's a TV show. Like it's much more, I'm, I'm sure it was much more about creating your own thing, pitching it the whole nine yards. Where did the initial drive or, or vision for that kind of come from? Yeah. So I've, I've, I've not talked about this uh, in the past because I think that in, in ways I've kind of for, forgot about it. And, you know, as, as the more, the more people ask you these questions, you, you kind of, you kind of put it all together. But the, the reality is, is my father had a television show on cable TV in Ontario called, called Outdoors Ontario. So it was mainly, it was, it was mainly him. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, so it was, and it was on Shaw Cable. It was just a cable show. Yeah. And I did a few episodes with him, but he, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a a job. It was a, a hobby. Okay. You know, it was he had you know he had a real job, <laughs> um, but it was a hobby, and it lasted for I don't know maybe three or four years at the most. Um, but it was during a time when I was you know really heavy into my into athletics and into to hockey, so. It was, um, I wasn't really super involved in it, but, you know, in retrospect, now I look back, you know, 20, 30 years later and I realized that, wow, that, um, that, that was the foundation of it all. But, you know, I'd been in the Yukon for a lot of years before it really came to, to fruition where I don't know, like, like a lot of things in, in my life, sometimes, you know, some of the good best ideas 
happen with some good friends around a campfire and a, and a glass of rum. And that's where, that's where wild Yukon was created. A great friend, um, a best friend, Ryan leaf. He works for Jim Shockey. And um, if anybody in this hunting industry, they, they might, a lot of people would know him. He, um, he and I were going to, um, we're going to start this, this together. And as life, you know, life happens and, people have you know make this have to make decisions ryan um decided to go and uh and work for jim and i i said well i'm gonna do this anyways <laughs> so that's um yeah that's that's kind of where where it started i have a we have a number of businesses and the the team that that i work with now has been here from the from the very start and my you know dave my main videographer he came over from Czech Republic and he started working for me at our tourism business and great athlete. I saw, I saw some ability in him. He, uh, he created this little video and I said, Hey Dave, let's, uh, do you want to come shoot some hunting with me? And, and that was the start of it. And it's just, it's never stopped. And Carl, he's, he's been there really from the start, uh, taking, taking photos and, you know, he, the, both those guys, we're the main crew. It's just, it's really, it's the, it's the three of us. Obviously we have a lot of support. My wife does a lot with the, with the company. Um, we have a couple other managers that do, do, you know, work with the company. So it's, uh, but that's kind of, it's been kind of homegrown in a lot of ways. And I guess the inspiration, um, whether I knew it or not would have, uh, would have come from my father way back when. That's wild, man. It's funny how everything, how everything comes full circle. This is a, this is a little bit off topic, but I <clears throat> had this realization the other day. So I had this falling out with my old man and that side of the family, let's call it like 14, 15. And I did two years of moose hunting with them before that, I think 13 and 14. And then we have this falling out for reasons we don't need to get into. And I don't really speak to them for probably almost close to a decade. And I come out West and what brought me out West was tree planting. And it's interesting you talked about adventure racing for you being that like very like um, pivotal experience where you kind of like leapt up into like the next version of yourself. That first year I went tree planting, I was, I was doing a degree at Thunder Bay. I went tree planting up in Hearst. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever been the best at anything. Like I just wasn't that guy. I was good enough, but I'd like, I'd never, I never had that serious drive. I'd never had the ability. I just, I'd never been the best. And when I got to tree planting for starters, it's piecework. So I was like, oh, I was like, so you mean the more these that I put in there, the more money I'm going to get at the end of the season. And they're like, yeah, that's how it works. I'm like, okay. And I remember at the end of my first year of, of, um, university, I developed a really strong relationship with my calculus, calculus professor who also happened to be an ex tree planter. And, uh, and he's like, before the end of the season, we're having this conversation, excuse my French, but he's like, listen, you're going to go to camp. There's two rules. You don't give a shit about anything else. Where's my land? Where's my trees? You don't have a right to anything else except land and trees. You don't care about the food. You don't care about where you're sleeping, you know? And like, and I'm like, I'm getting into this. Like I'm getting fired up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. And it was like, everybody else kind of showed up for like this vacation. And I showed up for land and trees. So it was like first guy out of the bus in the morning, last guy in the bus at night. And my rookie season, 
I set the company record in history. 7,038 trees in six in, in 12 hours, sorry, 11 hours and 55 minutes. So I planted an average of 660 oh trees per hour for 12 straight hours. And nutrition was not my strong suit. This was on Coca-Cola and oranges. I shit you not, man. That was all oh I had all day. But it was like, it, it, like that was that first oh. time when I'd had this like imagined ceiling of potential and then smashed through it. And then that creates this realization. Well, if that was an imagined ceiling of potential, then what else is a mat? What other imaginary barriers have I created for myself that aren't real, that are only there because of my lack of imagination. And so anyways, then I proceed to go out West. I your do all limit, these things. Your own limiting beliefs. A hundred percent. I proceed to go out west and I almost like comically masculine. Like I keep putting myself, I'm doing heli shows and then I become a forestry engineer and I'm doing remote stuff on Haida Gwaii and I'm living in these camps and like, it's just a crazy life. And I realized it didn't, I didn't put it together until it was actually a little while ago. It was this lack of closure of this transition into manhood with my father because he never gave me that like, nod that like, okay, you're a man now. So when I left at 14 and, and never spoke to them because it was my two uncles and my grandfather, my grandfather is also this like super powerful figure in my memory. They were the ones that they saw me as this boy. So I went out into this like wilderness world and work world feeling like a boy. And I always felt like I had a chip on my shoulder and I needed to prove I was a man. So I, not only did I go that far, I went like, and it was so funny. I can remember Going back to my grandmother's funeral when I was like 24, 25, hadn't seen anybody in a really long time. I've done degrees. I've done like crazy accomplishments. And my father is showing people this picture of me tree planting on the side of a mountain with my hand on the skid of a helicopter. Cause you can like, as you're well aware, you can kind of like manhandle a helicopter by the skid and we would load up like the empty bag. So there's this picture of me looks like pretty badass, right? On the side of the mountain with this. And I was like, <laughs> that was the, that's what stood out to him. Do you know what I mean? Like all the other kind of cool stuff I'd done, but his boy was on a mountain with a helicopter and it was, anyways, this is a very long winded way of me coming back that the realization that, that I had was this, like all of this was like this search, this, this kind of quest to, to like transition into a man. And, you know, long story short, well, actually long story long. My old man's coming out in September. This is the second time he's come out for a hunt and we're, we're flying out of Dece and I'm taking him and my brother for 10 days for caribou. And it's like, it's nice. so wild how the tables have turned. Like from us being at the end of a logging road in North Bay in a wall tent to me flying them out of Dece to go spend 10 days in a teepee in an ultralight wood stove. And now it's like, you know, I'm the one leading instead of the one following. Like, it's just, it's pretty badass to have, you know, all that. And now the relationship's fine and everybody's good. And it's, but a lot of that is like the wilderness and that the experiences you have out there. I think that that's though, like listening to your story and I'm not, you know, I don't know that if, if you are, you're not giving yourself uh, enough credit, but you went and did something creating, you had the, the understanding that you need to create the man because there's nobody there that has helped you do this. Yeah. And that in and of itself is, I think is rare because nowadays, 
you know, not to get off on a different topic, but nowadays just what is a man? Right. And to be able to go and do that, create that all by yourself. Like I know that what I do every day with my son yeah. is I know like I've got the vision I've got. It's, it's a, it's a methodical laid out plan here. Yeah. I am going to build this man because society is not going to do it for him no. is not going to be not going to help him build what we consider a man and what, you know, what I consider a man should be and not being the kind of guy that stands up when it's time to stand up, that provides for his family, that makes sure. And, it's, and this might be old school, but guess what? When, when my kid, hopefully if all goes as planned, when, when he stands up and somebody says, okay, who's going to be counted? Like he's at the front of the line yeah, and he's ready to, he's ready to take it on where what we're building in society now is just weakness and it's, it's saddening to see. And if, and I know that, you know, my, my, the, the truth is, is that I believe that I'm setting him up for complete domination yeah. because what I see him competing against is complete weakness. Yeah. And to get back to where this whole point of this is, there are people that can, that can do it, that can create that, that life for themselves and be the man that they, that they were born to be, even though it's not fostered, you know, growing up. And I think that's a testament to you to have went out and done that. And whether it's, you know, whether you're proving to your father that you can do it or whatever the reason is, it still drove you to be the best that you could, you know, that you could be and to do a pile of cool shit. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, when it's all, when it's all over, it's, you know, were you, were you there? Were you there to, did you stand up when to be counted or did you, uh, did you cower and did you, you know, fold up and go play video games? And um, I think that that's, you know, we obviously know the answer to that. hundred percent. Okay. So this makes a great transition point, but I want to do a time check here because we're hitting the, we're hitting the hour. Can we, you got a little bit more time or, or you got to go? I'm good. Okay. So good. I think this. this is a perfect segue into the kind of your philosophy because a lot of days, you know, Matt Rinella just wrote this article and I've, I've talked about it a couple of times in the podcast. And I think he actually had some great points in that article that got lost because he was a little bit too hyperbolic about some of the stuff. But, but us being too focused on engagement because of rack size and stuff, I think he, he nailed it. And I'm not going to argue with, with any of it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of content creators out there these days, and like, I'm not an idiot. I've got a YouTube channel. I, I've got an Instagram account. I know the things that generate engagement and they're salacious. People like big horns and dead things. And, and where I'm going with this is that, yeah, you're a successful hunter and, and you've definitely taken down your share of of very high caliber animals, but it seems like there's more of an underlying philosophy that that drives you, which ties in nicely to what we were just saying that probably, and maybe it wasn't even the most important thing when it started, but I would hazard a guess that it's the most important thing now as to why you create content, whether it be, you know, the morning IG stories or the TV show itself, but maybe share a little bit about what is your philosophy in, in that regard? And what do you see as your responsibility 
as far as your voice in the world and what you want to be remembered for in that regard? Yeah, I think that it's an, it's, it's a, it's a deep question. Um, you know, what do I, what do I want to be remembered for? Um, I think that anybody that, that goes in and creates a, you know, a television show and certainly puts their name on it as, has a, as a certain level of, um, narcissism. Um, I'm not going to argue as a guy who did the same. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I, I did it and, and I, you know, I thought long and hard about it, whether, you know, I knew I was going to do the television show. So you're going to put yourself out there, Yeah. but do you put your, do you, are you bold enough to put your name to it? And I, I felt, you know what is like, I've never, I've never shied away from adversity. I've never shied away from confrontation and and if you don't like the content or you think it's too arrogant that you put your name on it, um, you know, I really, I really don't care because ultimately at the end of the day, it's about is the content quality and are you giving back, you know, are you giving more than you're taking? Right. And right. I think that I like to believe that, that I am. Um, so, you know, what do I want to be known for? Um, I just... In a lot of ways, I want to want people to recognize that not all hunters are these fat dudes sitting in a tree stand over a bait pile. Yeah. Like this, this is not all that all that hunters are. And up until, you know, up until not that low, you know, I've been producing, we'll be starting producing season six, but there was nobody doing what I do. Yeah. And all the television shows that you see is like these whitetail hunting and, and I grew up in whitetail country and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not, I'm not carving it up, but there's way more to hunting than just sit, you know, building crops so you can grow these big bucks and then, you know, sit in a tree stand. And, and that's, that's great. It's just not for me. Yep. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not trying to carve anybody up. I'm trying to reckon, trying to identify and hope that people recognize that Western hunting is a very physically de physically demanding it's mentally demanding there's there's a lot of preparation that goes into it and for me i just wanted to at when it comes to hunting i wanted to be the best that i could be and for me that meant you better you better be an adventure race style hunter you can't be weak in any discipline so I need to be able to fly my own airplanes. So that meant I had to go and get my license. I had to buy my own airplane. I, you know, I had to be able to do that. I had to be physically stronger than anybody else out there that in the, in the mountains. Um, I had to be able to endure more pain in the mountains. And, you know, I had to be, I had to be a good teammate while I was out there as well. So this is what adventure racing you know, kind of brought me, you got to be a good shot. You got to be able to do all of the, the research you have to, if you want to be able to find big animals and it's, it's not even about antlers or the horns for me. Right. Like it really isn't because like two years ago, I didn't even kill a ram because I was just trying to find, you know, I was trying to find a big ram yeah. and I didn't, I spent 
way more time in the mountains than any other year <laughs> looking for sheep and, and passing sheep up. And, you know, and that, that in and of itself taught me a few things, taught me that, um, you know what, it's, it's really not about the horns. And I walked away from that season. I didn't feel disappointed, but I felt that, you know what, I don't need to do that again either. Right. You enjoy the hunt and enjoy the time that you're out there. And, and now I try to do it as much as I can with family members right. because it just makes me really happy. Yeah. So I feel that I've achieved what I wanted to achieve for me on a physical and um, emotional level as far as trying to be the best, you know, mountain hunter that I could be. And I, you know, I think that it requires the ability to do it all where you don't need to depend on a single person or anything to do it for you. And that's where I had to be well-rounded, just like an adventure racing athlete. So, um, yeah, that's, but what now to move on again, to answer your question, what do I want to be known for? I think that it's, it's a kind of a moving target. Okay. And I really, that's kind of what, what my goal was, was, you know, I really want people to, to understand what a, a good mountain hunting athlete or, you know, mountain hunter looks like and try to portray that as best I can. But now it's really moved into, um, I want to affect people's lives in a positive, positive way. Yes. Like I want to be able to help people get up in the morning and move forward and be the best version of themselves on any given day. And, you know, paint the picture or show the path to that. And, by just, you know, giving, maybe if it's giving a few tips or just, you know, a few motivational, you know, just something to, that might just flip the switch that somebody needed to just make a change in their life for the positive and that being um, mentally and nutritionally. I think those are the three foundations of a successful, you know, a successful life. 100%, That's what I man. want to be known for. Yeah, I love it. And it's it's funny. I went through. I can look back on my own history, and people always ask me like, "Why backcountry? Why 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 backpack hunting or backcountry hunting?" And I'm like, for me, I'm at the point where it it it, it it's like the perfect culmination of all these separate disciplines. Like I went through a big CrossFit phase, and I'm like, oh, I I was like, oh, I'm close to finding what I need. Then I went through a big jujitsu, competed a lot phase, and I'm like, oh, this is closer. We still, cause now we've got some competition. We've got some like, you know, like, um, facing another individual. And then when it was like, when I found backpack hunting, I was like, okay, the underlying goal here is the development of self. And you can use whatever vehicle you want in order to facilitate that growth. But just for me, and I think for you and for guys like us that have this like combination of like cognitive drive, like you want something that's going to be like mentally challenging and taxing and also, you know, um, psychologically and emotionally challenging while incorporating that physical challenge. Like I can't, there's not another discipline that I can think of that brings, you know, I can see how adventure racing would definitely be close, but then again, without, without that animal there and that like you competing, like it's just that perfect culmination of all those individual disciplines for me that that brings everything together that I haven't found anything else that, yeah. that does it like that. 
Yeah. It's uh mountain hunting. That's why when, you know, I just came back from the sheep show and it's, it's just a different, different experience when you get a bunch of mountain sheep hunters together, like it's, it's a different vibe than it is when you get a bunch of, you know, whitetail hunters together. It, it's, it's just, it's completely different. I'm not, and in my opinion, it's way better, but you know, that's just because I love mountain hunting and not so much sitting in a tree stand. Yep. I seem like I'm beating up on tree stand hunters, which I'm, which I'm not trying to do, but it's, it's not the same. And I don't care what anybody says. No, I would agree. Um, okay. Let, I'm, we're going to jump over here. Um, cause everybody was kind enough to, to post some Instagram questions and I would be remiss if I didn't ask them and I'd get a bunch of angry messages. The, f- <laughs> the, the first one I'm going to ask is from my buddy, Bob, because he's a, he's a big fan and he was one of the first guys who asked me to, um, to have you on. So he's, I'm going to read the question word for word. So don't screw it up. When you talk to Greg for the podcast, can you ask him about his gunworks rifles and in particular his barrel length on each? And he knows you shoot a seven SOM and a 300. So I think essentially he's curious about barrel length on those yeah. two rifles. Um, well, thanks. Thanks, Bob, for uh, suggesting I come on the podcast first off. Um, but yeah, so on those Gunworks rifles, they're both 20-inch barrels. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, that's, that's, the, that's the quick and dirty answer on it. Um, but yeah, so before, you know, complete openness, I am not a gun nut. Let's, okay. and what I, like, I'm, and I shouldn't say gun nut. I, I am not the kind of guy, my brain doesn't work like measuring ounces of, you know, of powder and sitting down. That's, that's not who I, who I am. I'm about, (laughs) I'm about, you know, getting out there and getting the job done, doing, doing what I need to do to be the best shooter that I can be to actually just put the animal down. So I love the fact that guys are so passionate about, about the technical aspects of, of whether it's shooting or whether it's, you know, ballistics. And I can so appreciate that. Um, there's a reason why I was just an average student and because I probably didn't have that, uh, <laughs> I didn't have that, that, you know, attention to detail that those kind of things require. So, um, if I don't give you, uh, give you much more than that, Bob, that's, that's the, uh, that's the reason why. I love it, man. Well, I think this is why we all need a gun nut buddy. Right. Cause I'm the same way. And I'm, oh. to be honest, I'm more of an archery guy. Like my true passion is archery, but I like shooting a rifle. And I've just actually, it should be here Monday, got what I'm calling like my first flashy rifle. Like I was a diehard Tika guy before. And I was like, if it shoots straight, why do I need anything else? But I find, I got a, I got a fierce and 300, um, PRC with the carbon fiber barrel. I'm very excited, but again, I relied on people like there's a guy, Omer down here who runs precision optics. And I got a couple other buddies I text with, and it was like, I'm just going to rely on your experience. Like just put something in my hands that will do what I needed to do downrange when I do what I need to do at the trigger. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's kind of my philosophy too. (laughs) Okay, so this one is rather interesting, and I think I know what he gets by this, but um, this guy says, your thoughts on why some say stones are unique to BC, and then he says marketing, supply, and demand. So I think he, he means 
is there an argument that people say stone sheep are actually only inside of of British Columbia? Do you got any thoughts on that? Well, um, yeah, there there was a study done recently within the last few years. I don't know if you're um, familiar with it, but and I'm just going to kind of try to paraphrase and don't quote me on any of this stuff because again, my attention to detail is not, uh, is not what some people would uh, consider <laughs> it should be. But um, so there was a genetic testing done and they on, on sheep throughout British Columbia and the Yukon on thinhorn sheep. And they essentially found out that the genetic alteration um, there's a definitive line almost between British Columbia and the Yukon where South uh, or in British Columbia for the most part are all stone sheep and anything North of that, that kind of that Yukon um, Yukon highway, the Alaska highway is considered um, doll sheep. Now they still could be dark and they could be um, have that, you know, that dark, dark hair trait. Um, phenome or whatever it's called, but so so then it gets then there's that whole category of fan and sheep and yep. you know doll sheep, like you know I've I've taken I've killed lots of pure like doll sheep that have black hair in them and they're nowhere near stone sheep country. Right. So yeah, I do believe that uh, that that there almost is this definitive line and because the genetically from what i understand um the science has proven that that is that's that's the truth so ho hopefully that answers the question yep. so yeah bc's got stone sheep the yukon really don't okay. but there's this push to have the second or third category of of fan and sheep right and there's certainly some of uh you know some marketing that uh that would play into that as well so i think to and I, maybe that's what he's alluding to is the cost of, of sheep hunts yeah. and how marketing goes into, um, into jacking up the price uh, of sheep. So, you know, anybody that has dark sheep in the Yukon are going to call them stone sheep because they're, they're just, they're valued at more. They're just valued more. Right. So they want to charge a higher price for them. And I mean, that's just, that's economics and marketing. And, yeah. and I don't foresee the day that, um, that, you know, somebody considers a dark sheep in the Yukon to not be a stone because there are too many people, too much money out there that have killed stone sheep, right. killed dark sheep in the Yukon that call them stone sheep and don't want to, you know, don't want to be looking for another stone sheep because they just have to have <laughs> the stone sheep, right? Yeah. Because that's, uh, that's just going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't foresee the day and that's, that's going to happen. But um, yeah, I think that genetically it sounds to me from what I understand that there's definitely a line yeah. and uh, Yukon, doesn't have stone sheep. Okay, good to know. Go to footwear for river crossings. Take your boots off and walk across. I love it. I'll give a second recommendation what? to Wiggy's waders. I've had good luck with those. If you do actually want to carry something in your pack, I think they're maybe 11 ounces. Um, yeah, but come on. Do yeah. you really want to carry those in your pack? I love it, man. Like, yeah. Come on. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I don't. 
Yeah. Like if you want to go ahead. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm all like, I know dudes that roll into the mountains with 70 pound packs yeah. at the start of a hunt. And if that's, you know, if that's your gig, then, you know, hopefully you're, you're, you're comfort, you're comforting yourself enough that you can stick it out, you know, more days in the end. That's how I look at it. Now, do you wear, bring a second pair of footwear? Because I know some dudes will do that and they'll bring like camp Crocs with them. So at least they're not going to get their boots soaking wet when they go across. Or are you just stripping down to everything? And, and are you going barefoot, leaving your boots on? Or you got a secondary pair of, of uh, like lightweight Crocs or something for camp? Yeah. Um, I've never carried a second pair of shoes, uh, camp shoes. Um, I, I will admit that I've been jealous when I see guys that do do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've never carried it. I just, I either, when I come to a Creek crossing, I either just take my boots off and just go barefoot or I just walk through it with my boots on. Okay. I love it. And it really depends on where I am in the hunt and how, how wet I am at that point. You know, anyways, if it's, if I'm completely dry and it's early in a hunt, then I'll just go barefoot. And if I'm already wet and it's been raining and then I'll just walk, walk through and won't really care. Yep. Um, only one gun sheep to moose. What are you, what are you using? Oof, to moose. We're not including bison in here. Right. So sheep to moose. Hmm. It's a tough one because the two calibers that I run are super close. Um, I could get it all done with the seven song. Okay. But I love the 300 win mag. Yeah, me too. That's what my TK is. And I love how, like, I just love, I'm like a one gun guy. Cause it just makes it simpler to me, but I love my 300 win mag and everything it yeah. touches falls over. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It, literally everything those things touch fall over so yeah yeah it's it's really tough to but you still throw bison in there and then it's all it's the 300 all day long okay okay tips for what to do with your food and pack at night when you don't have trees around to hang it up and bears are a risk oh, people don't want to hear this <laughs> i i i don't i literally sleep with my food in my tent yeah, same. Because no bear is walking into my tent and going to take my food and wreck my hunt. Yeah. You're going to get wrecked before my hunt gets wrecked because you yeah. eat all of my food. I literally sleep with it all. Yeah. It was, uh, I was solo elk hunting, I think a couple of years ago, and I went to go hang my, my, my food up. And then I was walking back to the tent and I'm like, and I'm deep at this point. And I'm like, you know what? No, I, cause that's, that's worse for me. I think then at least the bear waking me up and at least then I can do something about it. I was like, nah, you're coming back. You're coming back with me. So again, I do think it's, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that everybody's going to have their own like comfort level, but recognize you should have at least asked yourself the question. If you wake up and your food's gone, what's the plan? Because I don't think a lot of people think about that. Yeah. And like my gun is beside me you know, loaded, ready to go no matter what. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll know if a bear's sniffing around my tent. And if that yeah. means I have to blow it, you know, blow a shot out through the bottom of my tent, not even at the bear, you know, and obviously I know where everybody else, everybody else is. And it's not like somebody's going to, yeah, I, 
I really, I really don't worry about it, about it that much. And maybe this is, this is an aside, maybe because living in the Yukon and bears are not, you know, habituated to humans. Okay. Um, I've never really run into the, run into a problem right. of a bear coming in and, you know, wanting to, you know, to eat the food in camp. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But I've been very knock lucky. on wood. And I was, I was a forestry engineer in BC for 15 years. I've probably had 200 black bear um, run-ins and I've never had a negative bear encounter. And I think bear awareness and understanding how to, and not doing dumb shit. So if you know how to engage with the bear when you do engage with the bear and then not doing dumb shit that's going to put you in a bad spot when you engage with the bear, I think solves more problems than most people would, would care to look at. Yeah. Um, They're aware. That's the, yeah, that, that's hundred percent. Where would you recommend people go to learn more about adventure racing? Let's, you know, somebody's heard about it. They understand about it. They want to do one. Is there like a, a particular website or a society or anything that, they should look at? I think that, um, you know, the, you want to become more aware the adventure racing world series is just something just, just Google it. Right. Yeah. Just, and what like eco challenge. Um, that's the, that's the sport. If you've ever, if you've ever looked at, at that, um, really just, just go, just Google it and find out. Cause I don't know what there is for, cause it's a fringe sport. Yeah. Like it's hard. Yeah. Like you don't know, I like, you don't know many people that do it and certainly that do it for a lot of years and, and at the highest level because it's bloody hard. Yeah. So you got to be prepared. If you want to get into adventure racing, um, it's going to suck because, but that's the pleasure in it. It's the pleasure in the pain. And that's what society lacks so much of, in my opinion, is that we're all soft and we just want to, you know, get through the day and everything should be easy. And, you know, every, no one can say hurt someone's feelings and all of this bullshit. It's just like, go out, feel the pain and figure out what you're made of. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's not easy to find information on adventure racing I'd like us <clears throat> that I know of. Um, I've been out of the sport for, for a while, but yeah, go look it up. I couldn't recommend any sport more than that one. Like, but knowing that it's going to be hard and you're going to get so many amazing rewards from finding out who you are in tough, hard situations, yeah. do it. Just if you want to know something, it's like anything else. If you want to know bad enough, you're going to find all of the information, Right. And just whoever asked that question, please go do your first adventure race, figure it out because you will be so well rewarded for the experience when it's all over. Love it. Um, I got to give a shout out to my buddy Tanner, who, who is the founder of Frontiersman Gear. He's a knife smith here in, in BC. And he wants to know what you're using for blades nice. on your mountain hunts. Ooh, well, I, come on, Tanner. Um, I do have a couple of your knives, uh, and they're they're amazing. Um, so this is a, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm discovering you, now. This is, is a well placed. Is this plug. a technical question? <laughs> this is this is yeah yeah. This is, is this yeah, a technical okay. question that he's that he's asking me? Are we talking about a uh, you know the style or the not the style and or type of metal that's being used? Because <laughs> if that's what you're asking, Tanner, 
I don't know the answer, just like, you know, my ballistics. Um, but um, nope, Tanner, I have used, uh, I've used Tanner's knives. They're amazing. Um, I also use Benchmade. They're fantastic knives. They both sharpen up um, really easily. I used to use a, uh, um, you know, kind of Havilon uh, scalpel blade type yep. knife, but away from that in the last number of years and more to a traditional, you know, light knife, like, uh, like the ones Tanner is making um, and the Benchmade knives that I'm, I'm using. So there's uh Tanner. Thanks for, thanks for that. Well, it's kind of funny. That's my challenge this and year. I've literally, been, I've, no, I do need to. Go ahead. Yeah, I do need to say thanks because Tanner actually built me a knife, and um, he engraved you know my name on the the sheath and and built it out of uh, sheep horn. So like, I mean, the guys the guys building great stuff. So I will. Uh, it it should be a plug for him too. Yeah, that's my challenge this year is that I've been on a Havilon Piranha, and after having Tanner on the podcast. A, I ordered a custom kind of hunting knife, but I'm going to switch to um, a permanent blade uh, processing knife as well. Um, and I've just, I've never had great sharpening skills. Like it's just been a skill that I I haven't spent the time to develop. So I love the Havilon because you just rip off the cover, slap another blade on, go to town. Yeah. And, and I'm realizing now I'm just being lazy. Like just learn how to sharpen a good knife, get one knife, take care of it. And you're then it's also, you don't have all these problems of all these disposable blades you know, which are always a pain in the ass out in the field. Like, where am I going to put this so I don't cut myself in half with it half an hour from now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's, uh, that I think that we all, you know, using, I find that the, those blades, the scalpel style blade is I'm more concerned about cutting myself with it. Yeah. Like I've cut myself with that thing more times than, uh, and there's no forgiveness. None. Like, no. So you, you know, you don't even know it sometimes, no. right? Um, yeah. Okay, we got we got two more here. Then we're going to wrap it up. Um, uh, buddy of mine wants to know healthy snack options. He knows that you and your wife are very focused on nutrition. So let's maybe put just some. Let's say backcountry. What 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 are what are and maybe even some DIY stuff or yeah, healthy snack options. Um, well, my my wife is a an amazing cook. Um, she's, which is obviously is, is a great thing to, to, uh, have in your family, but she's also very health conscious. So we have a couple recipes that we, um, we built or we, she's put together that we eat in the field religiously and they're, they're great. I don't, you know, one of them is like, like an energy ball, but what I'm going to do is I'll, uh, I'll get those links to you. And maybe uh, maybe you can post it with with this. And uh, so, if anybody's looking for kind of homemade, healthy options in the mountains that are high energy, high you know high protein, exactly what you need in the mountains to keep you going through the day, um, then everybody can have that uh, have that recipe and maybe uh, try it out for themselves. That would be great, man. I will. I'll absolutely put that in the posted notes and selfishly use it for myself. Um, I don't even know if this is possible but somebody wants you to rank from easiest to most difficult sheep species to hunt oh are we talking north american sheep sure let's put let's, some boundaries just on it just so north american just simplify sheep. it a little bit okay yeah um not having had the 
you know, not having killed some of these species myself, but having knowledge about, about the, uh, the sheep and the style of hunts easiest desert, then dull sheep. Then I would probably go the, the, this is where it gets challenging is the bighorn versus the stone sheep. Um, you know, getting a good bighorn in BC and Alberta, from what I understand now, is super challenging. Yep. Um, not necessarily due to the terrain that they're in as much as the access to them. Yep. So um, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a toss up between the the stone and and the bighorn, but probably uh, I have to go. So from from easiest, let's go desert, dull sheep stone sheep and bighorn because i think that there's just a lot less bighorns to go around that makes sense greg i i can't thank you enough my friend this has been amazing um i'll I'll pass the floor over to you any closing thoughts or or anything you want to share any anything upcoming you want people to be aware of let us know yeah no not not really one thing that i really um want to you know am really trying to like i alluded to earlier that is the most important thing to me, you know, right now in, in my life is really just trying to help people become, you know, the better version of themselves. And if, and I've created this, what I call the 10 minutes of do the work. And it's just, it's just getting people moving every day for 10 minutes that, you know, we can all do 10 minutes. I put a new workout on my Instagram every day and my commitment to to the community or to, to myself as much as everybody else is that I will never miss a day. And that's, you know, I've been doing it now for months and I've, uh, you know, knock on wood. Um, I've not had to miss a day, but when I'm out in the mountains, then my wife will be putting them up. But ultimately what it is, is the 10 minutes of do the work is in my opinion is just an introductory start for people to focus on something small and manageable that they can achieve a win every day. And I've, you know, I've, that whole thing started out with six of my, uh, six of my, you know, lifelong childhood friends and the recognition that, uh, that, you know, we're getting older and, and some of the, some of the team is, uh, is not going in the right direction. And that's where the six minutes started. And, or, or sorry, the 10 minutes started with these, these six guys and every, uh, every day my buddies are, are doing the work to 10 minutes and it's been life altering for, for uh, most of them. So I'm really proud of that. And if I can give that to, you know, to my community, to the world, to anybody out there that, and it's not just about hunters, it's just about everyone improving their, improving their life one little bit at a time. And that's, uh, that's my goal. So if I can, if I can help anybody DM me, send a message, if you need to ask a question, um, I'm all ears and we will, you know, sometimes it's challenging to get, to get everything answered, but, um, I work, uh, I work hard to do it and our team works hard to, to make sure that nobody gets left behind. And that's, uh, that's my goal. Fantastic. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Um, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time, Greg. This has been, this has been great, man. So thank you very much. And we'll, we'll have to get you back on maybe, uh, 
as our seasons ramp up or, or ramp down at some point, love to touch base and, and see what you got planned. Great. Thanks, Jay. I really appreciate you having me and uh, yeah, take care and uh, all the best. All right. You too, man. Have a good day, Greg. Well, there you have it, guys. My interview with Greg McHale. Really cool guy, man. That was uh, that was a very interesting conversation to have. And I, I, I agree with a lot of his insights. As always, if you could take a moment to engage with the platform, like, comment, share, subscribe, uh, it would greatly help the, the channel and the program grow. I always really appreciate that. And as always, thanks for tuning in.